Welcome to the Public Morality. In 1968, in his last public speech, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. stated, all we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. But the long arc of social movements in America bears witness that King's demand has proven much easier said than done. One of the reasons has been the presence of fear in our public discourse. Moreover, one of the paradoxical barometers of the influence of social movements has been the opposition's use of fear. Joining me to discuss the role of fear in the American narrative is Professor Victoria Walcott. Professor Walcott is chair and professor of history at University at Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Professor Victoria Walcott, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so pleased to join you today. Good. I'd like to begin, uh, when you think about America's history as it relates to social change, talk about the role that fear has played in that narrative. Absolutely. Uh, I think fear is, a, there's a long strand of both questions of violence and conflict and fear that has been used quite deliberately often um, to try to keep down progressive social movements and to limit the amount of change um, that can happen over time. So you see that, for example, in the question of segregation, racial segregation, the ways in which fear and violence has been used as a way to intimidate and threaten um, particularly African-Americans from challenging those social mores. Why do you uh, suspect the role of fear has remained so influential? Because we could, I guess, chart a timeline that begins in 1776 and, and, and continue all the way to 2022. So why has fear been so influential in your view? I think it's a, it's a way um, to control the mobility and the presence of certain groups in certain spaces. Um, and that's been a kind of broad theme. So if you're fearful of going to a particular community uh, because you're worried you might be you know, arrested or threatened or intimidated, then that's gonna limit your mobi mobility. So it's a way to kind of control people's spaces and their mobility and their ability to, to exercise their citizenship rights as well. And it can be very effective um, in doing so. So even when we think of America's origins, as I, as I just alluded, mm -hmm. um, is it fair uh, to also suggest that the framers of the Constitution, in spite of their glorious words, were distrustful to some degree, fearful of those who were not part of that white male gentry class? I, that's definitely a fair uh, a fair suggestion to make if you think about the fear of the mob, right? That this this concern about what they would perhaps see as mob violence, um, violence that's out of control. Um, certainly, this is the generation that's witnessing the Haitian the revolution in in Saint Domingue, later Haiti, um, also the French Revolution. So, kind of concerns around you know uprisings. Uh, of the lower classes, uh, of people of color, of obviously of enslaved people as well. There was a lot of kind of moral or panics around the potential of um, enslaved people engaging in, in rebellion and, and resistance uh, and, and lots of attempts to try to stop that from happening in various ways. I mean, I mean to that extent, since you mentioned the, the, the Haitian Revolution, um, 
that in some ways became a deterrent for, for any thoughts of America uh, keeping its promise of liberty and equality, sort of put it on hold because it sort of put fear that that could be replicated here in America. Would that be correct? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, you even you also have um, former uh, slave owners who come to states like Louisiana and elsewhere during and after that revolution who are talking about their experiences in the revolution, who have lost their land, right, and lost their quote unquote property that is the people that they they enslaved. So that fear was, I think, very palpable. Mm. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, that given that gentry class, uh, these are my words, was a subset of a subset that comprised roughly 16% of the population. So in essence, that fear that you just alluded to has a disproportionate influence on roughly 84% of the population at the time the Constitution was ratified. Yes, I think that that would definitely be accurate. So you're also not only talking about enslaved people or free people of color, um, but also about you know working class whites, um, people who are perhaps landless or day laborers, that group as well. I mean, when you think about it in that context, I mean, fear is beginning, at, I guess, uh, with the nation's origin, fear is profoundly influential. In, in, uh, in spite of uh, our words to the contrary, I mean, fear is really calling the shots in, in the inception of America. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. Um, and, and again, I think it's connected to uh, fear of of violence, of mob violence, of, of rioting, of insurrection. So all of that is used to justify, again, you know, more um, in some cases policing, uh, in some cases, you know, more legal structures to limit the mobility and the limit the ability of, of groups to come together and to push back against some of those power structures. And uh, just, just staying on this thing for, just for, for a few more minutes, if, if America was formed on the ideals of liberty and equality per the Declaration of Independence, mm -hmm. I would argue, A, liberty was granted an 87-year head start, um, and I'm sort of dating that to when Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address that said the country would have a, a rebirth of freedom, and B, fear has sought to define the subsequent movements for equality uh, as some sort of out-of-the-mainstream ideology. Your thoughts, please. Yeah, as, as not patriotic, right, as not, as not, you know, as, as creating conflict um, and that conflict taking away from the American project. So fears, for example, in the 19th century about class conflict um, and that being used to argue against the ability of working people to form unions. Uh, what they were doing was essentially un-American. Um, it was working against the free market. It was working against you know, the, the great businesses of the time. So that the rhetoric around patriotism, around um, a certain ideal of American nationalism or exceptionalism uh, has definitely been used to push back against what is perceived as conflict that will undermine those goals. So, so, so what I'm hearing you say, though, that so that definition is sort of rebranding patriotism to essentially a, a, a straw person, if you would. 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that's right. But it's again, it can be used to certainly see this during the Cold War, just to jump ahead a little bit. Um, during the Cold War, it becomes extremely heightened where any kind of political opposition, including, of course, the civil rights movement is labeled as communist or anti-American. That's a sort of extreme version. But I, I agree with you that you can see that going back, you know, 150 years even prior to that period. Uh, well, well you, you mentioned the Cold War and sort of it's sort of ironic. Um, you also mentioned the civil rights movement. I mean, it's, it's sort of ironic that it is because of the Cold War. I mean, not exclusively, but because of the Cold War. And I'm thinking 1963 and, and the um, the images in Birmingham of the police dogs and firehouses, because of those Cold War tensions, that sort of helped create a momentum for civil rights legislation that may not have been there were it not these tensions between East and West that allowed Nikita Khrushchev to say, well, Mr. Kennedy, you talk about democracy, but what I'm looking at Birmingham doesn't look like democracy to me. The Cold War is such an interesting case because it both helps and hinders the civil rights movement. So you're absolutely right if you're thinking about it in terms of global politics. And um, one of the most fierce advocates, as it turned out, for civil rights legislation on the federal level was the State Department, uh, because the Soviet Union was using, um, really started particularly with the Little Rock crisis in 1957, we're using these images of white mobs attacking, you know, African American school children, and broadcasting those around the developing world. You have these newly independent states within um, Africa, within Asia, you know, using that as propaganda. And the State Department was saying to Kennedy, Johnson, um, well, Eisenhower before, you have to do something about this. We're we're losing uh, our ability to bring in these newly emerging states to uh, the American side of the Cold War. So in that way, it's, it's actually quite helpful. And King and other civil rights leaders, you know, understood this, and they certainly lobbied uh, the federal government partly based on that. Um, but it's also the anti-communist sort of rhetoric during the Cold War is also adapted by white supremacists uh, to legitimize their white supremacy, that they're, they're good patriots, right, that they're fighting against communism. Um, and so it, they wrapped their white supremacy and racism in the flag of the Cold War. So in that way, it could be, you know, lead to violence um, and lead to oppression as well. So sort of uh, what you said earlier, sort of a continuation of rebranding that notion of patriotism, if you would. Yes. So that. Right. And so they they're waving, you know, at Little Rock, um, you know, in these at, in Birmingham, uh, they are, they meaning white supremacist groups, citizens councils, the Klan, waving American flags. They have signs that talk about fighting against communism. Um, they say very explicitly that interracial mixing is communism, that desegregation essentially is communism. <clears throat> so they, they are using that rhetoric, uh, you know, in order to, again, make their claims legitimate and sometimes their acts of violence legitimate as well. Hmm. Uh, just going back for a second. So when one reads the words, uh, we the people of the United States know the form a more perfect union, if we consider the use of the word we initially was not nearly as inclusive as one might assume, I'm basing that on the subset of the subset I referred to earlier, does it make perfect sense that those who sought to make the word we more inclusive would be met with such fear-based backlash? 
you know, I think that goes to the issue of power um, and that expanding who we means and are and includes challenges uh, systems of power. Um, so allies in, for example, you know, thinking about white abolitionists, uh, but then also other white allies later into the 20th century, these are often individuals who are engaged in a kind of radical politics, um, sometimes re radical religious politics as well in terms of, you know, the beliefs of, say, the Quakers, for example, that take them outside of those power systems and allow them to see the humanity, the common humanity across lines of gender, across, across lines of race and religion. Uh, so they are able to kind of go um, beyond this more narrow definition of who is an American. Um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on and talk about fear, because I, I just find the concept so, I mean, it's just so fascinating. And um, I, my word, so germane to the American narrative, even when it, in what appears to be a defeat, it seems like fear can still eke out uh, a, a partial victory. And I'm thinking specifically about the ratification of the 15th Amendment in 1870, uh, which originally was about universal suffrage, but ultimately became um, uh, an amendment for, for black males. And even that created a rift in the original abolitionist movement. So I would say that we've also witnessed those tensions as late as 2008 during the Democratic primary uh, contest between candidates Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Your, your thoughts on that, if you would. Yeah, those schisms are deep and profound. Um, and, you know, for many of the white women suffragists of the 19th of the late 19th century going into the early 20th century, um, after the passage or during the debate about the 15th Amendment and after its passage, uh, they began increasingly to um, make their arguments for suffrage be about the fact that African-American men had access to the vote, which they did for a time. Of course, it was taken away in, in the Deep South. Um, and that also immigrant men had access to the vote and that these men were not worthy of the vote when in fact white women did not have access, that white women were more virtuous. So that is a, a deep wound, um, I would say, within those movements that have has persisted uh, into the 20th century. And I think you're right to point out that the that democratic primary kind of, you know, that some of that um, deeper historical wound was revealed again. Um, you know, why is a younger African-American man who has less experience, perhaps in the, in the minds of some, uh, gaining precedence over a white woman? So, so yeah, those, those wounds are, are deep and abiding and, you know, will probably continue. We'll take, and I think the best way to address it is by talking about the history as openly and honestly as possible. Well, as open as honestly as you and I are having this conversation right now. How about that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, often the timeline uh, for women's suffrage usually begins uh, with the Seneca Falls uh, Convention in 1848, mm -hmm. culminating with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. But if one goes back to the letter written by Abigail Adams to her husband, John, in 1776, before uh, the convention in Philadelphia, when she exhorts him to remember the ladies, that's a 144-year timeline. And I would add to that, in my view, it wasn't until 
1965 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act that full citizenship in America was truly codified. I mean, that's a long time for fear to have influence. And I guess because we look at these things sort of a la carte, we don't see how long fear was really calling the shots to, to, to circumvent, you know, progress. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think what's important to understand um, after the passage of the 15th Amendment during that period of Reconstruction, when Black men did have access to the vote for a time, uh, first of all, that that access um, was often thought about communally, so that communities, women and children and men would, of freed people in the wake of, the, of, the, of emancipation, would talk about the vote together and make decisions about who they were going to vote for. Um, but also, the way in which the vote was taken away was through fear and intimidation prior to legislation. So what happens in states like Georgia, North Carolina, um, Mississippi, elsewhere, is that prior to, to state legislation, which you know requires things like poll taxes or literacy tests, first what happens is a campaign of racial terror. Um, so the Klan and other vigilante groups target uh, voting areas, often their churches. So that's why you have a mass number of church burnings during that period, which continue into the 20th century. So they use uh, lynching, they use violence, intimidation, and terror first um, to, to you know, undermine the ability for men to vote, Black men to vote. And then as they can retake control of the state legislatures, they change the constitution and pass these restrictive voting laws. So fear, violence, intimidation is, is very much part of that process. And I guess just to follow up on that, it's a, it's a sad commentary, but when we think about social movements in America, and especially ones that have led to success, there's almost a, a, a corresponding uh, track of violence that usually follows, you know, social, men, uh, social movements of influence. There often is. Um, there often is. And I think that's what makes the, the radical nonviolence of the mid-20th century of King and others in the movement so important as, as in terms of breaking that um, pattern to some extent, right? And I, I don't want to overly romanticize that aspect of the movement, uh, but I do think it broke a pattern and that was one of the reasons for the success. And just a, a very quick anecdote about this, this is um, something that's always stuck with me. Uh, this is about Highlander Folk School, which is in Tennessee. This is a, an air, a place that was training civil rights activists and labor activists starting in the 1930s. And they it was also a space where they developed nonviolent direct action, um, trained people in that tactic, but they also developed uh, freedom songs, songs like We Shall Overcome. And in 1959, there was a police raid on Highlander, a terrifying moment, of course, for these activists. And they were huddled uh, in the basement of the house trying to shield themselves from arrest. And they started singing We Shall Overcome. And they spontaneously added a new verse to that song, which is, we are not afraid. And they sang that over and over again. Um, and later that night, uh, a black woman, Septina Clark, really remarkable civil rights activist, and she was in jail, arrested during that raid. And she was sitting in her jail cell, absolutely terrified. She could be beaten. She could be sexually assaulted. She could be dragged out of the cell and disappeared. 
Um, and she remembered a song that Harry Belafonte had taught them at Highlander, which was simply the Michael Rowe song, right? Row your boat ashore. And she just sang that song over and over uh, to get through that fear and to find a source of strength. So moments like that um, in that period of, of the civil rights movement, I think are very important for understanding how to start to interrupt some of those patterns of violence. I mean, I mean, you just raised something that that we had not talked about because a lot of my my uh, question to you has been based on fear uh, as a weapon for the opposition. But we don't talk. I haven't yet talked about. But you just raised it was how those who were the recipients of fear how they handled that because I, I recall when King's house was bombed in in, in Montgomery. Mm -hmm. um, I forgot who it was, but someone was saying that he was it was dark and he was sitting in the corner uh, uh, reading Paul, theologian Paul Tillich. I'm like, who does that when your house is bombed? I'm, I I read Paul Tillich, but I don't think I'm going to read him right after you bomb my house. So I mean, it's so there's all these coping mechanisms for those who are the recipient of fear and violence. And the, yes, and those coping uh, mechanisms were taught and workshopped. Um, and, and at the time that King's house was bombed, he had rifles in the house to protect himself, as, as did most you know, homes uh, in the South during this period, to protect him and his family from the Klan and from, from the racial violence. Um, and Bayard Rustin, the famous Black activist, um, and others came to Montgomery and talked to him more about, I mean, he was familiar with some of these teachings, more about uh, how to actually use nonviolence in a way that could be politically very effective. And they had been doing this work since the 1940s. So they train activists on how to physically um, protect themselves. Uh, they also believed in techniques. I mentioned music as being very important, but also things like meditation, kind of controlling of your own body. They would usually fast when they were in prison and go on hunger strikes. And a lot of that discipline and training was used to defend themselves against this kind of physical violence. So before a freedom ride or a major, um, a major action, uh, you know, people were trained how to deal with racial epithets, rocks being thrown at them, and, and they were given that training and those tools to go into those situations. I, it doesn't mean that they weren't afraid, um, but they had tools to use, and John Lewis always talks about this very eloquently, uh, to, to, you know, actually control that fear to some extent and to protect themselves to the best of their ability. What, what to your last point, I, I'm, as you were giving that answer, I was thinking about King's very last speech. And, and as he's recounting his career, if you will, he talked about the Birmingham campaign. And he talked about the importance of them singing as they were going to jail and, and singing in, in, in jails and even how the jailers were moved um, by, by their singing. So it's not only a coping mechanism, it's also one of um, uh, transformation of the, of the opposition to some degree. Absolutely. And that was part of the purpose, certainly, of, of King's campaign. Um, those songs were moving. They were profound. Um, they gave I, the protesters a sense of, of not just strength, but also dignity, which was moving to people sometimes and, and could change minds sometimes, not the mind of Bull Connor, clearly, but, um, but some in the community as well. So it's, it's actually kind of amazing how central music is to the movement. Uh, in terms of, you know, again, creating a, a context of dignity, a context of strength, and 
as a way to, I think, you know, even physically to tamp down the level of fear so they could move on to another day. You, you, you mentioned you mentioned Bull Connor and earlier we were discussing uh, the Cold War and how the, the, the Cold War tensions became a curious ally to some degree to the civil rights movement. Um, we might put Bull Connor also um, in that category in that um, his infamous use of police uh, dogs and, and water hoses, you know, being captured on film and shown globally made him a curious ally. Uh, of the movement that his, how his tactics of fear uh, sort of um, boomeranged against him. Absolutely. And, and, you know, Rustin and King and others talked about the kind of theatricality of their protest movement, that, that, that creating that tension where you have such extreme, um, extreme, you know, violence on the other side did create media attention. And those 1963 Birmingham campaign with the with the German shepherds, with the fire hoses, those images are seared into, you know, the American psyche. And those were shown globally as well. Um, and that was very important for pushing towards the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So there is a kind of theatricality um, in these conflicts between, you know, these, the, the police state, the white supremacist, uh, and the protesters that could be very effective in changing minds. And it was also, I mean, one of the things that broke the back of Birmingham was it brought a lot of bad publicity to the city. So it Bull Connor never backed down, right? But um, the business owners in, the, in that city finally said, we've had enough. We're going to open up our businesses. We're going to sign an agreement um, to abide eventually by the Civil Rights Act and, and make Birmingham, you know, a desegregated town. But that was you know, not their political leadership. It was the, the business owners. Hmm. You know, I'm also fascinated as, as, as we're having this uh, discussion about sort of the, the basis of fear in the American American uh, public discourse. I'm fascinated by the manner fear also utilized uh, the judicious response to overt change with, with, in my view, so-called benign statements that suggest that whatever one is proposing, whether it's civil rights or suffrage or marriage equality, it's not something that the country is ready for, which, you know, maybe someday, but but not today, we might be ready uh, for the proposed change. And how effective has that sort of so-called benign language been uh, uh, utilized by fear? I think it's been very effective. It, it's sort of the, the the basis in some ways of, of conservatism and the idea of conservatism is conserving. Um, conserving the pre the present, or perhaps trying to, you know, live in the past to some extent and not have uh, sources of radical change. Um, but as you pointed out earlier, with your Abigail Adams, you know, uh, argument that in fact many of these ideas have been these ideas of say marriage equality, ideas of gender equality, certainly of racial equality, have been with us for for there's there's another tradition right for two hundred um, plus years. So. I think that's the sort of record that some of these things may look like radical change or be labeled as radical change um, have actually been simmering under the surface or come to the surface in, in you know previous decades that have been largely forgotten. But yes, I mean that language, I think particularly um, in the wake of the kind of chaos of 1968, uh, you see that language used very effectively by Richard Nixon, who you know wins the presidency that year based on the law and order campaign. Um, that he was very much tapping into the fears 
of kind of mainstream Americans or the silent majorities, he called them, <clears throat> tapping into their fears about what was happening uh, in American cities, what was happening with the anti-war movement, uh, the assassinations um, of multiple political leaders, obviously of King, and saying, you know, I, as a conservative, I'm going to create law and order and I will make that fear go away. Uh, and that was very effective for him, clearly. I mean, I might add uh, a derivative of that would would be make America great again. Yes, I mean, that 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 particular phrase taps into very much um, a lot of nostalgia. There's a lot of you know nostalgia in that for kind of Cold War post World War Two world of the single family home, the nuclear family, um, a sense of consensus, a sense of prosperity and peace that many particularly white Americans have that or older white Americans have that image of, of the post-war world. And so I think that Make America Great Again is specifically about like the 1950s um, and, and that it was a very effective slogan for some who have a kind of nostalgia or longing for that world of their childhood, perhaps. A, a common denominator uh, for successful movements in the United States uh, has been the commitment to portray their efforts as consistent um, with the ethos of the nation, specifically the Declaration of Independence's mission statement of liberty and equality. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering, in your view, does fear mask the fact that some are unwilling to forego what may have been the framers' original intent uh, as to the true beneficiaries uh, uh, of, of America's largesse. In, in other words, are they willing just to ignore uh, the fact that the framers really only intended 16% of the population to benefit to, to justify what might otherwise be unjustifiable in these quests for social change? Yeah, I think there is a distance that you're pointing out there between um, a kind of idealism around those foundational documents uh, and the and the real the historic reality of the specific time and motivations of, of those founding uh, fathers. Um, I mean, I I always of course think about Frederick Douglass in relationship to the to this and his famous speech about the Declaration of Independence, where he simultaneously talks about the specificity of you know slave ownership um, and the system of slavery being part of this, but also talks about the, the potential for us to live up to the, you know, some of the ideals or the, you know, maybe changing over time ideals um, that can be interpreted in those documents so that they're living documents, right? They're not, you know, they're not frozen in time in some ways. So they can be rewritten. I mean, Seneca Falls, they, they rewrote the Declaration of Independence to include women. And that kind of revision has been done over and over again. Um, but I do think it's important to understand exactly the historical specificity that you're pointing out, which is that there are, you know, there are um, historical contexts that leave a longer legacy. And certainly some of the more radical, you know, thinking about, again, thinking about the, the 60s and early 70s, um, with uh, particularly the Black Power movement, but some other movements during that period, which did begin to break away from that idealism and imagine, you know, a different kind of nation within a nation or other ways to kind of move forward in a more revolutionary way. That's fairly unusual, but it, it has happened from time to time. Well, you know, ironically, I'm just listening to your last answer, uh, and it's sort of ironic in that if we take that behavior that I just I just commented on, that 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 that, that sort of disconnect, 
But if you think about the motivation uh, to secede from Great Britain, um, we could conclude that the, the original founders were a marginalized group. And therefore, in that tradition um, became the Abigail Adams, the Angelita Grimkes, the Frederick Douglasses, the Martin Luther Kings, the K Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and so forth. So it's, it's actually those who have been marginalized that are able to see what America could be. And so you, we've needed folk who have been on the margins to move America closer to that more perfect union in spite of its fears. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, if you think about the revolutionary era and the and the early national period, these these notions of a small R republicanism um, that come out of that period, which are dependent on on citizens being virtuous, right, being good people, um, and that that idea of civic virtue is is absolutely you know central to to this again the found, sort of foundation of the political system. So that idea of virtue, you know, for, if you're a king or a Stanton, you are expanding that and you're talking about the ways in which if you're going to live up to ideals of civic virtue, then you need to dismantle the system of segregation. You need to expand suffrage. Um, and, and that will allow the full possibilities of, of small R republicanism to come to fruition. You know, one uh, of the many memorable statements by Martin Luther King, uh, to me, that sums up uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s actually comes from his very last address uh, when he says, all we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. Given your area of expertise, why has this seemingly simplistic request been so difficult to achieve? I think because history itself has become so profoundly politicized, uh, and this is this is very much true in the last uh, handful of years, that that history itself has become a partisan issue in many ways. Um, so that the interpretation of what's on that paper, of the foundation do documents and and you know others that have followed, like the Fourteenth Amendment or the Fifteenth Amendment or the Civil Rights Act, for that matter, has been debated. Um, and that for some who have a more kind of American exceptionalist or American first, you know, idea of American history, they find any emphasis on the marginalized groups that you talked about or the differing interpretations of these documents over time to be undermining American patriotism. Um, there's also criticisms, you know, from, from the left around this as well, to some extent, people who, for example, you know, feel that talking too much about, you know, different groups of immigrants, of African-Americans, you know, working class women, whatever, is somehow splintering American history. It's too much about identity politics. So American history itself has become, and I think always has been to some extent, deeply politicized, become increasingly partisan. Uh, we see this in our schools, of course. We see the, the debates over the 1619 Project as well. And, and that's part of that's part of the difficulty, certainly. You know, I'm wondering uh, 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 of the influence of fear uh, in movements like, say, the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. We might throw women's suffrage in there and, and, and marriage equality and, and, and the subsequent movements, so on, that they get mischaracterized in that 
when we talk about the civil rights movement, for example, it is talked about as something that helped African-Americans. Uh, conversely, um, women's suffrage is something that, that helped women when actually these are all things that made America better based on our, 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 the totality of our conversation. I wonder how you saw that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with this. King talked about this all the time, right? He talked about trying to bring freedom to everyone, um, that there's ways in which whites in America were themselves constricted and constrained by the system of white supremacy. Um, and that, you know, freedom for all is the goal. Um, and, and that was something that Fannie Lou Hamer and, and Ella Baker, you know, also talked about often. So, yes, the idea is liberation, a broader liberation for uh, American people across the board. Um, so, for, so just to go back to segregation, you know, what was often argued during the period of Jim Crow, not only in the South, but in the North as well, which is deeply segregated during much of this period, is that we can't have desegregation because that's going to create conflict. Um, and so the opposite argument is that it's the segregation that was creating the conflict and desegregation an openness, a mobility for everybody would create, in fact, not only racial equality, but also racial peace, and that would lift up everybody. So, so that is, you know, the argument often of those movements, the women suffragists would say that they, as women voters, would be able to address some of the social and, um, and issues of the day, like labor, for example, uh, in a way that was more effective or, or perhaps from a different perspective that would improve society at large. So I think that's a very important argument. Uh, talk about uh, the role of fear in the current public discourse. I, I know you're a historian and you're, and you're always looking back, but just look in the present moment. Is there a historical comparison in your view to, to our present day fear? Well, there's some existential things that are happening um, crises that are happening right now, which are fairly unique. Uh, the pandemic is not unique. We've, we've gone through pandemics before. So there are some parallels there with, you know, the, the flu, of course, that happened um, after uh, World War I, um, some of the 19th century pandemics. So there are some parallels there. The climate crisis is a kind of existential threat that is relatively new. I do think, I mean, I do find some hope in the present day. I feel that people are looking for solutions in a more almost aggressive, but also maybe imaginative way um, because the feeling of crisis is so profound. So I, you know, the summer after the uh, murder of George Floyd with those massive protests, and I know that there's been backtracking since then, certainly, uh, but at least for those months of those protests, those are the largest interracial protests um, in American history. Uh, there were whites who supported the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, but nothing, nothing to the to the extent and um, in, just in terms of numbers, as we saw in those protests. And you, you see a lot more discussion of, of new and different solutions. I see that in the unionization movement that's happening right now. You know, other kinds of conversations about things like guaranteed incomes and other policy choices. Um, it seems that when you're in a moment of crisis like this, as we are in these multiple crises, that it also provides rupture, which can maybe, you know, open up the possibility for new kinds of solutions. I mean, I mean, one would actually have to go back to what, 18, 1860, um, when we actually saw other Americans as uh, 
existential threats. I, I, I just, I mean, you would have not been able to convince me five years ago that that, that might be uh, uh, members of Congress who might look at, say, the, the behavior of Vladimir Putin and say, well, he has a point here. I, I, I just couldn't conceive of that until it happened. So. I could not conceive of January 6th happening. I mean, while it was happening, I, I was in utter, utter shock um, and sort of have remained in utter shock uh, since then. The idea that you would have an attempted coup um, that would be actively defended uh, by major political figures is 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 really is really, really shocking. So there there are some things and that felt, you know, not quite 1860, but at least revealing the possibility um, as you're suggesting, of that kind of civil war, essentially. Um, has fear transformed us into a post-truth society in that uh, my truth is uh, difficult to ascertain? Um, my truth is, is based on just my uh, beliefs and uh, the democratic values notwithstanding don't matter and emotional titillation uh, trumps all. Which grants, grants me leeway to believe whatever I want to believe. I'm not restricted by any sort of democratic parameters. Is that what we are now? I definitely feel that fear helps to create and reproduce and spread conspiracy theories um, or as you're suggesting, kind of false truths. Because as people feel fearful, um, and they're often fearful of things that are, or at least they perceive are outside of their control, uh, that can lead them down a path of trying to make order out of disorder. Um, so they might buy into QAnon theories or, or you know, buy into other kinds of essentially propaganda that help make sense of a world that they're terrified um, about. Uh, so th it definitely opens up room for that kind of thinking. Um, and there's definitely people and groups out there who take advantage of that fear uh, to spread these ideas, you know, obviously through technology and social media in particular. Is there anything um, we can do to, to, to counter that? I, I, I remember uh, we were talking about 1963 and, and th then you, you either you got your news from Chet Huntley and David Brinkler. You got it from Walter Cronkite or whoever was the anchor at ABC at the time. Now I can pretty much go to the station of my choice and give me, you know, Byron's truth. And that becomes my reality. It, can we put that genie back in a bottle? Or we just have to find a way to coexist with that reality. I don't think we can fully put the genie back in the bottle. I do think education um, is a place where, some of this work can happen. And I think that's actually why it's being, it's being attacked right now, because there's an understanding of that. So, you know, in my classroom with my students, uh, we talk about the intricacies, the contradictions, the complexities, the contingencies of American history all the time. And that helps them make sense of the world today. They, you know, they, they have, I think, a better a better sense of the of the social context of today as well. So that would be that would be one area, um, and I do think that's one of the reasons. You know, there's there's a sense of that being threatening uh, in some ways. Um, and then I think you know the social the contemporary social movements that we're seeing right now, Black Lives Matter, the new unionization movements around Amazon and Starbucks, which I think are are pretty significant, um, climate change action, those 
offer a sense of a, a vision of a different future, you know, a vision of a future that has more social justice, that maybe, you know, includes some of those ideas of civic virtue more, more robustly. Um, so there's that as well. Professor Victoria Walcott, uh, history professor, uh, University at Buffalo, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on The Public Morality. Really appreciated your, your wise insight. Thank you. Thank you so much again for the, your invitation. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.